0: hello and welcome to another episode of balanced body radio I'm your host Casey Ruff and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now dr. Trevor. Travis Enertson is a small animal veterinarian who is involved in medicine and surgery at the Heritage Pet Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Enertson has a special interest in reversing diabetes in cats using a very low-carbohydrate diet. His track record in treating diabetes in companion animals is jaw-dropping. Using low-carbohydrate diets and literally nothing else, he is able to achieve complete remission in more than 70% of his feline patients. He uses the same diet to reverse obesity and other illnesses in the animals that he treats. He decided to take that low-carbohydrate diet, the one that he had created for overweight cats, and reformulate it to improve his own health. The diet was based on similar principles and concepts from what he wor- had worked with the cats for several years. The Heritage Pet Hospital's biggest goal is to prevent chronic disease in the pet patients they treat by using many health interventions, including implementing a low-carbohydrate, high-protein diet. For more information, you can find Travis on Twitter at Low Carb vet. Travis Seenertsen, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio.
1: Oh, Casey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: It's such an honor. I'm a little bummed out. I can't see you on Zoom. We're having a bit of technical difficulties, but that's okay. Uh, the screen looks black, but where you are, it's very, very white right now. Um, this, that major storm that just rolled through the United States just rolled through Minnesota. So tell us about the weather where you are.
1: Uh, yeah, I just was checking in a little bit ago. We are at minus eight. Um 18 mile an hour winds minus 31 wind chill. So it's pretty, pretty rough right now.
0: That is absolutely brutal. I'm fortunate. I didn't spend many years there. My parents um, moved to Bismarck, North Dakota for a few years based on my dad's job. And I was born in Bismarck, um, but only spent about a year there. And I saw, I think it was negative 44 with the wind chill there today.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've been watching some of the ag Twitter people of the Dakotas and Nebraska and Wyoming. Well, you just feel for those horses and those cattle and oh, those ranch.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine. I've been to Minnesota several times. Um, I have been there in the winter and it was brutally cold, but to, just to see hockey played everywhere was incredible. <laughs> Made my heart so happy. At least you guys are playing my absolute favorite sport all over the place.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's pretty intense. None of my neither of my kids played hockey, but a lot of my friends' kids are. Yeah, boy, it's uh, it's quite the uh, quite the deal out
0: here. It was amazing to go to like a, a Buffalo Wild Wings on a Thursday night when like prime time, prime time television that everybody is watching is high school hockey. It's a huge deal. I absolutely love it
1: yeah I do too. It's awesome.
0: Oh, that's amazing. well, i'm I'm so excited to talk to you about your work and everything that you've discovered. I think we're going to have a lot of crossovers here talking about animal nutrition and human nutrition, which I think will be absolutely fascinating. We'll probably, you know, cross those lines several times back and forth. um but but, I'm yeah, I'm really curious to learn what you have learned. But tell us um about your interest in becoming a veterinarian.
1: yeah, well, I just grew up loving animals and always wanted to help animals. My dad was a veterinarian, so, just kind of seemed like the logical fit. Um, I uh, graduated from Colorado state in 1994. And then I practiced in Alaska for a couple of years. And the first couple of years of my career, I was a uh, mixed animal. So I did large animals and small animal, Which, you know, in hindsight, I think it kinda gave me a little bit of background knowledge on a species appropriate diet, right? Because you're gonna feed a horse an obligate herbivore <laughs> completely different than uh, a cat, an obligate carnivore. Um, but so I think that may have given me a little bit of benefit or maybe just made me more crazy as I've gone on to learn more. <laughs> um, but the feline diabetes uh, is really what caused the switch for me. We have a, a diabetes epidemic in cats from like uh, the 1980s till now it's well over 500% increase, both diabetes and obesity. And when, when cats get um, diabetes for all intents and purposes, it's, it's, it's type 2 diabetes. It's insulin resistance. And uh, I was treating those cats the way I was trained, the way all the textbooks read, the way all the specialists said. I put them on a uh, which uh, high-fiber diet, you know, kibble, which is high in carbs. And um, this what I now consider to be really industrial doses of insulin, take really high doses of insulin. I always hated that disease because you could never achieve normal blood glucose. I mean, their blood sugars were just sky high or they were so low they were in a coma or dead. And just to get a normal blood sugar was just rarely achievable. They might hit it twice a day on the way up and the way down. You know, they could never keep them in that zone. Um, but, you know, I never really questioned it because that's the way I was taught. The textbooks, the experts, you know, are all in lockstep. And then uh, this crazy, ridiculous came out, crazy, ridiculous research came out in 2001 and uh, Dr. Greco was her name, and uh, she was uh, one of my instructors. It was just brilliant. I mean, she did the exact opposite in this small study. She put them on like a low carb, uh, canned food, high protein, kind of like kitten diet, and she just used to use minuscule doses of insulin. And I was just stunned when I was reading the kind of results she had because I had never experienced anything like that. And uh, so I didn't wait. Until there was a bunch of randomized controlled trials. I just jumped in with my next diabetic, and um, within several months, the cat was in complete remission off all insulin. And then the next cat I treated the same way, complete remission in several months. The next cat. So I had three in a row complete remissions off all insulin normal blood sugars, no sugar in the urine, normal fructosamine, which is like an A1C. And I was just kind of shocked. I I, I now realize in hindsight that was a little bit lucky to get three in a row, but it just kind of changed the way I I looked at treating these. Um, We started counting our cases over like a two-year period, and we got up to like 70% of our cats were in remission. One time we got a little bit higher. Over time, though, our our remission rates actually started to fall a little bit. And I, I think part of that is because people started Googling me and finding me and coming to me. Um, and a lot of times by the time I would get these diabetic cats, they'd already been what I considered as mismanaged for uh, way too many months, sometimes years. And you kind of have a brief window of time when you still have some functioning beta cells in that pancreas to, to achieve remission. And if they go too long, there's those feline beta cells are just really, really sensitive to glucose toxicity. So, wow. yeah. And then I... Kept going on, uh, it was just an amazing experience after seven years of struggling mighty to um, get these cats in remission. And the cats that we didn't get into remission, uh, I just remember two off the top of my head because they're in my records, but one was called Braveheart, The other one was called Lucy Marie. It could never achieve um, remission in those cats. They just required a minuscule dose of insulin twice a day for life. But Braveheart, we diagnose them at age nine. And then at age 18, we end up putting them to sleep for uh, bladder cancer. But that's just, I, I just have never met another vet who's had a diabetic cat on insulin for nine years. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm patting myself on the back too hard here. Maybe other people are doing that. I don't think you can do that without a low-carb, high-protein approach. I wow. just don't think it's a
0: Wow. That is absolutely amazing. I want to go back to your training. You mentioned textbooks. Was nutrition talked about in your training?
1: Oh, it's terrible. It's just like med school. I mean, it's just very little. And then what what training we do have, unfortunately, I think is influenced by industry a lot. And a lot of our training was (laughs) uh, calorie math, you know, figuring out how many calories they need. And, um, you know, when you look at veterinary nutrition labels, it's just absolutely terrible. I mean, if, if you go to pick up some human food, you can look at the label, you can tell how many fats, proteins, carbs, it's all broken down. Veterinary nutrition labeling just sucks. I mean, you have to send people to the store with a calculator and some formulas how they can do the math, to find out the protein, carbs, and fat. And even then, it's still a guesstimate. It's just—it's frustrating to me that and, you know. And I've been in practice for what was it 28 years now, and we still have not made any progress on getting better wow. food labels. Wow,
0: that's crazy. Wow, so
1: it's, well, like, it, it, it's just kind of like I, I think about. It, I, I, teaching nutrition in veterinary school, I I, I wish there was more of that, just like I wish there was more of that in human medicine. But like in human medicine, when they do talk about increasing nutritional training, unfortunately... I just think they're going to teach the food pyramid or my plate harder, which isn't really going to move the needle. in
0: that, my opinion. That was my argument also, like on paper, it sounds amazing if we can get doctors more training, but then you think about the training they're going to get and it's like, maybe they shouldn't get any more training than they get. Maybe they should get absolutely zero because they're getting taught the wrong stuff anyway.
1: Yeah, I know. You're going to have to unlearn that much more.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right. And unlearning is challenging, right? It's really challenging. It took me a while to unlearn a lot of stuff. Um, That's very challenging.
0: Wow. Okay. So, so before you found this solution, which is highly successful, just to clarify, you had seen no cats get better on any of the conventional um, treatments, especially with insulin?
1: You know, I definitely saw improvements. So you have an uncontrolled diabetic and get them on insulin. Um, there's a uh, significant improvement, but I, typically I want to say, and I'm not, Hundred percent right in the summer, but most diabetic cats will live about three years on insulin. That's Um, it, and because you just—if you're using the traditional approach with high insulin and high carb diets—you're just going to have such dramatic fluctuation in the blood sugars. And yeah, so you know, I I kind of we call it the catkins diet. You know, it's high protein, uh, moderate fat, very low carb. But I think of that approach kind of similar to like a Dr. Bernstein, you know, diabetes solution, like you know, if you put minimal carbs in, you need minimal uh, amounts of insulin and you don't have those huge variations. I mean, I just think it makes sense.
0: You've given me several gems already in this conversation. Um, Braveheart, the cat is a great name. I might steal that for another cat that I get. And, and the catkins diet is absolutely fabulous. So thank you for both of those. That's fantastic. Wow. Okay. So, so did you notice that you were treating diabetic cats more and more as your career went on? Like, is this an increasing problem? I know you mentioned that it's increased by 500%, you know, statistically, but anecdotally, you've noticed that.
1: Yeah, so you're asking a really brilliant question. So I do think our our, rates—last time I checked, the rates are still going up. But for me, it started um, going down over time, and I'll tell you why. So after I started realizing you could reverse diabetes, or in the ones that you couldn't reverse, you could get excellent glucose management. And then I was listening to some of these holistic veterinarians in my field, and one of them said, "Yeah," she said, "You can use that same diet to reverse obesity." And I, I thought. that's ridiculous because um, I'm a hypocrite. My own cat was overweight, you know, and and I put her on the most expensive prescription weight loss diet you could buy. And over a period of several years, she went from overweight to mildly obese. And you might just say, "Well, Travis, you know, you're feeding her too much. You know, it's calories in, calories out. But I'll tell you what, when you have a cat or a pet, a dog that's hungry all the time, they're often going to win the battle. Right. I mean, she's waking us up at night. We can't sleep. She's yelling. Finally, you just put more food in her bowl, shut up so we can sleep. And um, so I thought it was ridiculous that this holistic vet suggested you could use that same diet that reverses diabetes. You could use that to reverse obesity. But I tried it with my own cat, you know, N equals one. And it was amazing. I put her on this canned cat food, which I thought was going to make her obese because more obese because she loves canned cat food. And I thought she needed this high-fiber, low-protein prescription weight-loss diet. Um, But the weight just melted off for Casey. I mean, she could jump up on high shelves and tables again, and it was just freaking amazing. And then so I started treating obese cats with that, and then they were losing weight similarly. And, And oftentimes when we didn't get all the weight loss, I just really wish I had DEXA scanners for these cats because sometimes they would not. Really lose a significant amount of weight, but their muscle tone felt better, their coats are better. People are telling me how much more active the cat is. You know, I think the scale lies. I really wish I had a way to do better body composition rather than kind of a subjective, what we call body condition score. But maybe I'm fooling myself, but even those cats that didn't lose a significant amount of weight still gained a significant amount of improvements in uh, body composition. And so then I think the reason my, my diabetes cases started dropping at, at a certain point, I'm like, why do I wait until these cats get fit, sick, fat, diabetic, these bladder problems called interstitial cystitis? Like, why do I wait till they get sick? And then I recommend a species-appropriate diet. So I just started to recommend it for all the cats. Um, and uh, I, I jokingly tell my clients, but I, <laughs> there's a lot of truth in it. You know, if you really take this information to heart, you're kind of hurting my bottom line. Because all the stuff that keeps us so busy on a day-to-day basis just tends to not show up, or shows up at a much lower frequency, and um, so yeah, I, I just rarely get a new diabetic case anymore. every time I do, it's just someone who looked me up on the internet, you know. And like I say, those are really challenging cases because you usually can't achieve remission, but you can still get excellent glycemic control.
0: Wow. Well, I being a nutrition coach, I often say we're really bad at business because, you know, if if people follow our advice, they tend to do really well and they don't need us for the rest of their lives. And so we end up putting ourselves out of business. It's interesting that you're doing the same thing with a completely different species.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know I was listening to one of your podcasts and I just I really enjoyed the part where you're talking about like, you know, when you're a trainer, you know, it's it's 100 percent commission you mentioned. Right. And so you're only gonna be successful in a career if you're achieving good clinical outcomes. And um, I, I just, unfortunately it's not the same in medicine like, like that. And
0: it's, disappointing. Yeah, that is very disappointing. I appreciate you listening to the show. This is part of the reason why we invited you is hopefully we get a few more like downloads out of that. That's great. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about cats specifically. We'll talk about other animals and humans, obviously, as we go. But um, if you can talk about cats specifically and how they evolved, like where exactly they came from and and, you know, kind of how they would have eaten, you know, back back evolutionarily, I guess.
1: Yeah. So my understanding is they. almost all the domestic cats we have here in this country are descendants of the African desert cat. And the African desert cat is 100% carnivore. Um, When you analyze their diets, it's rabbits, rodents, mice, birds, lizards. I mean, it's just all animal based food. Um, And so uh, I, I think if you look at their natural heritage, all of our cats descended from the African wildcat. I mean, I know my some of my colleagues think I'm crazy, but I think we should try to minimize the natural max. You know, try to have a, a natural diet that will you know mirror that. Um, and I think the other big thing with cats—it's not probably true with dogs—is um, when you look at the African desert cat. There's not much water in the desert, so maybe up to I've read a study up to ninety percent of their daily moisture needs comes from the moisture and the prey that they catch. Because it turns out little mom, little mammals are like big mammals. We're all roughly 70% moisture. You know, canned food is 70% moisture. Dry food is only 10% moisture. So if you put these cats on a dry food diet, they will drink more water. But I don't think they drink ever enough to be like fully hydrated. And so if you're mildly dehydrated day in, day out, day in, day out, you know, it puts a strain on the system, particularly kidneys, which depending on what research you look at in cats is either Cancer and, and kidney disease are the top two leading causes of death, so it's an unproven hypothesis that if you keep a cat well hydrated throughout its life, you could maybe delay the onset of kidney failure. It makes sense to me that I argue with colleagues because not, not very many people agree with me, but I, I think it's worth looking at.
0: Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Do we know? I, this is probably debatable. I know I can domesticate my dogs. I don't know if I can domesticate my cat. She is a stone cold killer. She lives outside. She loves eating all the voles on the hill in front of our house. Uh, so, d- domestication is is maybe going a little too far. But how how did how did our paths kind of converge and how did we start kind of cohabitating together? Well, you
1: know, so my, I I don't want to sound like I'm an authority on this. It's not really my wheelhouse, but just from little poking around, I did, you know, like back when uh, in the Fertile Crescent, back at the, like, the Egyptians, and we started um, cultivating grains, and then the rats were such a big problem. So it sounds like uh, that I think that in the Fertile Crescent is where these cats were first adopted, and they're highly um, held in high esteem in those um, early farming communities because they wanted to protect their grain crops. And so I think we just started to uh, domesticate them at that
0: point. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So th- th- explain a little bit the, the difference between cats and dogs specifically and what, you know, the difference between like an obligate carnivore is versus what a dog is. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So this is my understanding. So cats are obligate carnivores. They cannot survive without animal-based foods. Now dogs, they say, are facultative omnivores. Um, and they'll, they'll point to some things like dogs do have uh, some mutations from, from like wolves. Where they can have more copies of the pancreatic amylase, and so a lot of people in my field will use that to justify the high carb diets that we tend to feed dogs. Um, I don't know. I kind of look at it more like uh, there's some adaptations that probably dogs made as they co-evolved with humans, and as humans were evolving to an agricultural-based societies where they're eating more carbohydrates. Probably the the wolves that they had domesticated. Only the ones that were able to acquire maybe more pancreatic amylase copies um, were the ones that survived to breed, you know, like a natural selection. That's the way I look at it in my mind. And I know there's people that are much better at talking about this than me, but I've looked at some debates about whether canines are true carnivores or obligate carnivores. I guess you could say that they're not necessarily obligate carnivores. I think you can probably meet those amino acids requirements and the vitamin requirements if it's highly supplemented and with, <laughs> with stuff. But I don't know. I still believe I could, if you look at the natural diet of wolves, which I spent a fair amount of time looking at, I just think you're going to get similar benefits with dogs as you will with cats. Probably not as profound, but similar.
0: So, for somebody who's not familiar, I know this isn't your wheelhouse, but for somebody that's not familiar with the evolution of dogs versus cats, dogs, you already mentioned it. They kind of, they kind of like cohabitated with us and, and we essentially made dogs. I thought this was really well explained in the TV show cosmos where the host kind of talks about how, you know, we basically made this kind of a deal with a wolf where they would get, you know, our scraps. They could gnaw on the bones that we have. They could use the excess protein that we didn't need and we would get, you know, something that, we could domesticate to have around to protect us or to help us hunt. Is that the way you understand that?
1: Yeah, that's the way I understand it too. And you know, it's interesting, like when um, when I went on my own low carb journey after seeing all the benefits in my patients and I, I, I just spent so much time going through the, the weeds on this stuff and looking up mouse studies and all kinds of stuff, um, I, didn't, I was never really able to make it make sense until I read uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Toms. And in that book, he talks about like the Eskimos and then he talked about these Arctic explorers like Stefanson. And then this is like in the early 1900s. And then when they kind of came back to society in the 1920s, that's after we discovered like vitamin C and, and insulin, I guess. But, uh, the, and they were talking about how you can survive on an all meat diet and everyone was saying, that's just, you know, complete crap. And they the huge study back in 1928 with Eugene Dubois, you know, in metabolic wards and nothing but the carnivore diet, which I found fascinating. But then I kind of wanted to read some of Stefanson's book on that polar exploration. And you know, it's absolutely fascinating. But it was fascinating to me as you look at those sled dogs, you know, and how many thousands of miles they did on those sledging trips. Um, and it talks about, you know, they would they like get a seal for the um the explorers to eat, but then how they just feed the guts and all the stuff they didn't want, you know, the lungs and the trachea and, you know, all to the to the dogs. And I was just fascinated that dogs could survive in such a harsh environment and doing such extraordinary, tremendous physical work, but yet they they thrive at that. And I guess the whole point, I'm sorry, i babbling here, but, um, you know, when you do look at these different copy numbers of pancreatic amylase, it's different in those Arctic Northern breeds than it is in, say, like a Saluki that, you know, evolved over in the Egypt area. You know, so I just think, like, they—they probably dogs were able to adapt to higher-carb diets. The ones that couldn't probably got bred out, But, but I realize this is not, I, did you say Cosmos was the name of that show? I got to
0: look that up. Oh, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. It, yeah, it, it kind of talks about our evolution and, you know, everything from the Big Bang on that happened. And so it, you know, it zooms out really large and talks about the universe and zooms in really tight and talks about us and our evolution. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it's I, probably like 2014 on Fox, I think it was released. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating series. And he does talk about like, like what it might have been like, you know, 30,000 years ago when, you know, we were up against wolves and maybe we were, you know, competing for the same food or maybe going against each other. But for whatever reason, we just kind of developed this amazing relationship. And back then, 30,000 years ago, there's not a dog a dog does not exist. Every single dog that we have evolved from whatever that one wolf that started the whole thing. And, you know, we would, we would selectively breed them. And so the cute one would maybe be bred with the fast one and you'd get that kind of a hybrid. And you know, the the strong one that was good in the wintertime up in Northern climates, those those two would be bred together and now we've got all these crazy varieties of dogs but most people i don't think really consider that that is not a natural thing and we have greatly sped up their evolution in just the last i think 20 or 30 years is what they think I, can you verify any of that
1: well you know so my understanding is like i think the hypothesis that they this um domestication of wolves to dogs took place in probably a couple different places across the world um at separate, at separate points. Um, you know it's interesting like you say like this huge diversity of dog breeds we have now I don't think there's any other species on the planet that has been bred to have so many diverse traits from size and hair coat to personality traits to the morphology of their head and their jaws like but the thing I argue about with my colleagues um, is like you know I say we should feed them like wolves and They're just telling me like, yeah, that twaula is not a wolf. You know, that Great Dane is not a wolf. And I get it, but man, I think the physiology is still the same, right? They still don't have salivary amylase, you know, Um, and I've done kind of some deep dives on this. When you look at their gastrointestinal tract, um, man, it's it's really similar to people. I mean, when you look at the, the, the gastric property, you know, where all the hydrochloric acid is Produced and the kind of pH that they can achieve, and the parietal cell density, like how many of these cells in the glandular portion of the stomach that are producing it, and the length of the small intestine and the and large intestine, and how like uh, you know you look at other non-human primates how they have just such a massive large colon and and a big uh, appendix or cecum if you will. Um, It just it's just amazing how human. Uh, visceral anatomy, you know, evolved over the years. Um, and just, it's remarkably strikingly similar to dogs and cats. So I, I find that whole thing interesting, but I guess my colleagues that say that, you know, they, they, they can thrive on high carbohydrate diets. I just disagree with them. I, I think they can survive on high carbohydrate diets, but I, I don't think they're going to fully thrive till we can more closely imitate a species appropriate diet. But Uh, Casey, I should just let your listeners know that I realize I'm crazy. I mean, there was a there's a time when I used to try to be normal, but I don't really care anymore. I'm just, this is my thoughts, you know?
0: That's great. Well, I told you via email. We love the crazy. If you want to come on our show and be crazy, we love it. I think all of that is absolutely fascinating as well. I have heard, and again, you'd be the perfect person to ask, that the dog's digestive system is the most similar of any animal to a human. Is that correct from what you understand? Or at least that's in your what experience? I am
1: understanding. Yeah, that, that, that that's what I'm understanding. And maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, but. Yeah, just when you look at the, you know, all these, like, it's, it's more close to a dog and a cat than it is to, you know, like chimps, you know, our most closest relative. so.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the chimps. I was just thinking that like, yes, we came from that kind of lineage, but we made some huge separations and made some big compromises thousands and thousands of years ago that led us down a completely different path. And yes, we are very similar to a chimpanzee, but that doesn't mean we have any kind of a similar life or a similar way of eating. We don't hang the same way, but we can throw things a lot better. Um, yeah, our digestive system's totally different. The structure of the jaw, like all of that human anatomy is vastly different than a chimpanzee you look at a dog and you think, okay, this thing doesn't look anything like me. But you have to consider, again, that they, we have this very special relationship that we evolved together, probably eating all of the same things.
1: Yeah, see, I think that's what my, when they when say, like, we co-evolved, I just think it makes a lot of, a lot of, makes a lot of sense to me, you know. Um,
0: yeah. Wow. I love that. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, I've heard this as well. I, I don't see this anywhere. Maybe you have, are dogs the only other animal that have the whites of eyes?
1: They have the white I'm sorry.
0: The eye, the white of the eye, the area of the eye that has the white part. Are dogs the only other animal that has that besides humans?
1: See, that's a really good question. I don't know. Casey. Huh. I wish I could sound smart. I don't know.
0: Fair. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I just, I, I remember hearing, and this makes sense to me that through evolution, we needed ways to communicate with our best buds who were our hunting helpers. And that was one way that we could have nonverbal communication is by shifting our eyes and having that eye white. And I heard that dogs evolved with that same trait because of that. So interesting to speculate on.
1: Yeah, that is this because I it, I don't really spend a lot of time on it, but I keep coming across articles in my you know vet news stuff about uh, how much dogs learn from our body language, not just uh, that, and and vice versa. You know, it's like how much of our communication is nonverbal and. Yeah, that seems like that would fit in in that scenario.
0: Just just watching my dog Rex, if he wants to go play with his chuck toy, he'll just look back and forth and back and forth. And we have that <laughs> kind of communication. I can do the same thing. If I look at his toy, he'll look at the toy and look back. And yeah, that's it's, it's interesting to speculate on. You've mentioned this several times. I think this is fascinating. People are argumentative with you about your ideas, yet your success rates are insane. What? Who is arguing with you about some of these ideas? <laughs> Oh,
1: you know, it's mostly with the academics, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, I, just so you'd be clear. And I'm, I'm just a regular vet. I'm in the trenches day in, day out medicine and surgery. Right. And the people I have these arguments with, I mean, they have all kinds of extra degrees. They're board certified PhDs. And, um, so I, I don't know. I, I realized I haven't had them on a training they've had, but I also realize they haven't had as much time in the trenches as I've had. So. I don't know, it kind of seemed to discount personal experience, um, you know, this this evidence-based medicine model, which I think is good, but I just think it's been kind of bastardized to a point where clinical experience has kind of been weeded out, and I I think that's a mistake, you yeah. know, in human medicine, and veterinary medicine, so I, yeah, I don't know, I, I realize I'm the crazy one, you know, I, I don't really care anymore, but I just... <laughs> you know when, when i was going along this this evolution and started reversing diabetes and started reversing obesity and then one of these holistic vets who I used, I used to think they, those guys are kind of crazy um you know she made the point like you know the more closely you can mimic an an animal's ancestral diet the less chronic disease you're going to have you know and that's like you know that doesn't that doesn't sound crazy <laughs> but but it'll get you in arguments with the academics. That's for sure.
0: Very interesting. Um, we've also talked a little bit about the influence of industry. Is, is that pretty a strong correlation from what you've seen that like a pet food company is getting into the level that you're at on the ground and is influencing the way that you and your colleagues practice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the industry, uh, influence is huge, you know, and they are the ones who support a lot of our CE so if we want to do CE on um, nutrition uh, continuing education um, then that's usually funded by a, a food company and if not it's being taught by a nutritionist who is funded by a food company so I, I, that's, I think that's a problem and I don't really know how to get around it because just not a lot of people are going to go out and fund the kind of nutritional studies I would like to see because um, there's not going to be any a lot of it's going to be home prepared food and there's just not going to be financial incentive
0: so i really i really hope the listener has made all of the 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 you know conclusions (laughs) that you're getting at here and how similar this is to the story of our health and our nutrition i think is fascinating before we leave pets i do want to ask you what what would be a better way in your opinion how do you feed cats how do you feed dogs what do you think is the ideal way to feed these pets Uh, and in like a practical way
1: Okay, so I, I'm, I'm glad you asked this. On cats, I'm, I'm quite confident about this. I realize I could be wrong, but I'm quite confident that just a canned cat food, even with the inexpensive stuff, you know, like when you're not afraid to say Purina, Frisky's Classic Pate, we reverse more diabetic cats with that diet than anything else. You know, and uh, I've had many conversations with my clients. We're looking at pet food labels, which I already said, pet food labels stink. You can't really tell what's in there. But they'll show me these other brands, and it's supposed to be better. But it costs four times as much. I just tell people, I think if you just, even just feeding the cheap canned cat food, um, eliminating the dry kibble, I think it's going to get you a long ways down the road. I, I think it's probably similar for dog food, too, but I, I'm not as confident. But I guess my theory is, like, you're going to have way less processing in the canned food. You know, and another point I'll bring up is I am a fan of byproducts. I know that's a controversial thing. Some of these pet food companies trying to throw their label out there does not contain byproducts. So I'm a fan of byproducts. Those byproducts, most of them are coming from the the animals that you and I are eating, the beef, the sheep, the goat, you know, whatever. the, the, The heart, liver, lungs, spleen, thymus, you know, all those organs that we're not eating. Are extremely nutrient dense for pets, so I'm am a big fan of uh, byproducts. But I feel comfortable saying that like canned 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 cat food, canned dog food, this thing is going to be minimally processed. You know, and it, it's interesting. Like when you look at the human dietary wars, you got the vegans on one side, you have the carnivorous paleo on the other, and you have Mediterranean in between, and we're all arguing all the time. But the one thing everyone seems to agree on is eat nutrient dense food that's minimally processed. And I just don't think you can find a more heavily processed food than kibble. You know, I, I understand it. I mean, they made it taste good. Uh, it's cheap. You don't have to refrigerate it. You can just set it on a shelf and it's good for, you know, a year. I I get the ease and the convenience, but I, I just think a more minimally processed canned animal-based meat diet uh, wow. that has byproducts or organs. I don't know. I, I, I really you got to understand. If you have any veterinarians out there listening to this, they tuned off long ago because that, that, that I know I sound like the lunatic. So I get it.
0: No, it's it's amazing, and and yeah, like I I understand why we're all bickering about that, but I agree with you. It's like we're talking about the differences that we have in eating plants or eating you know animal products, and we're certainly advocates of the carnivore diet. But like, if you're a vegan, you're at least you know thinking about nutrition and you're trying to get out those processed foods out of your diet. We have so much more in common than we have separation. I wish we could recognize that and stop so much of the bickering that we are absolutely guilty of. You're totally right. So, okay. So, so back to cat food, what are we talking for costs? The the cheapest cat food. I, I'm not as familiar with what are you talking like this is 10 bucks a day. This is 20 bucks a day. Or is this like 50 cents a day?
1: No. If I go to like Costco or, uh, Sam's club, I could buy like a huge case of cans, uh, and it turns out to be anywhere from around fifty to seventy-five cents a day. Wow,
0: wow! I mean, that seems like a comparable price to to dry cat food, right? At that rate,
1: you know, I think it's going to be just a little bit more if you're, but it's it, it's not going to break the bank, I guess. And man, you're going to make it back on keeping your vet your cat out of the vet clinic. Yeah, <laughs> if you're going to.
0: Wow. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So that takes care of the cat side back to dogs. Um, I know you've referenced him before. Of course, I'm going to forget his name right now. He's the doctor in, I want to say Australia that is a promoter of the barf diet. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Dr. Il- Dr. Uh, Billinghurst. I think Billinghurst.
0: Yeah. Fascinating yeah. episode that he did on carnivore cast with, um, Scott Mazlinski, by the way.
1: Oh, oh well, I got to I- check that out. Cause I, yeah, I, I'm a fan of his work. I've read his book. I haven't seen him interviewed on podcast.
0: It was, I want to say it was May of 2022. Fascinating. I'm so glad Scott reached out to him to get him scheduled. What, what do you think of that particular approach? And, and I, you've read his book, obviously you didn't come up with stuff. Can you comment a little bit about what he recommends?
1: Well, yeah, so that, that is what I feed my dog. Um, is, uh, is that biologically appropriate raw food diet or the barf diet? Um, you know what? It, 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 I came to this slowly because um, the veterinary field, just to be, make sure you know, uh, the veterinary field is violently opposed to these raw food diets for dogs or cats. But, I mean, when I say violently opposed, I really do mean violently opposed. Uh, and so that was kind of the training I had. And, and my clinical experience is what changed my mind because I'd have these clients come in and I'd be examining the dog. I'm like, God, these teeth are amazing. The coat's amazing. This dog is buff, man. She's shredded. She's strong. And I just like, like what do you, what are you feeding her? And they're saying, Oh, she's on a raw food diet. And I was like, eh, You know, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and I know she looks good now, but you're probably slowly killing her. I mean, salmonella, e. coli, parasites. You know, if you don't do it just right, you can get vitamin mineral imbalances, and she's going to deteriorate. You know, I, I was like, hey, you got kids at home, you know, you don't want your kids getting salmonella or campylobacter. Like, you know, I, I gave them a, a really good lecture that would have made any veterinary nutritionist really proud. Um, But I don't I, I don't know how many of those people quit me. But the thing I'm just shocked about is how many stayed with me Um, and year after year, just, I would just see these dogs thriving. And I was like, finally, after several years, instead of them getting a lecture they didn't want, I asked them, I'm like, okay, how, how in the hell are you doing this? And they're like, Oh, these people would light up Casey. They're like, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. You got to go to this blog. You gotta, it has to be balanced. You can't just go throwing raw meat at it and think you're doing it right. And that's where I think this, um, the Dr. Billinghurst, uh, from Australia just said does such a good job in his book. Um, I, I, I don't know it, it's, the veterinary field is really opposed to it. Um, but I don't know. Like my own dogs have benefited tremendously. Uh, I, I don't go around recommending it, by the way, because I, I know I'll probably get sued. But if, if people choose to do it, then I support them. And so the word kind of got out in our region. And so I ended up getting all these crazy people like myself with these raw food diets. And I've just seen a lot of health benefits. It's rare for me to see a health problem. So
0: wow. uh, Hard hard to argue against that when you're on, you know, in the trenches, like you said, you're doing the work and you're witnessing what is going on. I, again, you you kind of mentioned it earlier. It's the same way I found low-carbohydrate diets to begin with. I don't care what people eat, but if all of these people started getting better and started losing fat and feel great, like, I guess that's what I'm going to do. I don't really care what, a, a, you know, my textbook says or whatever. And that does make a lot of sense to me. I can only... I'm not very familiar with his work, only just, you know, re-listening to that episode this week in preparation for this conversation. But like, it's a combination of, you've got some raw food, um, you know, some bone mi- mi- meal, I guess, mixed in. You've got some um, plant material that's also mixed in. But he was even talking about, like, you don't have to get the percentages exactly the same every single time. You can vary the diet. And he was even mentioning things like intermittent fasting. Like, again, this might be controversial, but he was suggesting that it would be okay for you to feed a dog once a day, once every other day, they could eat as much as they like, as long as they're getting the right nutrients, they might not need to eat as many, you know, meals as, as we think they should. I thought that was fascinating.
1: I know, Casey, I'm so glad to bring this up. So I totally agree with you, <laughs> but the, the veterinary nutrition is going to be mad at me for saying that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I totally believe that now. And I think you have a lot more flexibility with the nutrients and that in the background of a healthy diet like that, just, you know, just like, like vitamin C in people, you know, if you're on an ultra low carb diet, your your vitamin C requirements are dramatically less. And I just wonder if there's similar interactions with dogs. And yeah, I, I agree with you, or you too, on this point of intermittent fasting. Um, I've had a lot of my clients ask me about it, and I was telling them, you know, we just don't have any really good studies on it in dogs. But I'm doing it with my dogs, and I do my fasting. I have my dogs fast uh, periodically. Um, and then I on Twitter, uh, a gal reached out to me. She's a researcher in South Africa, and sent me an article out of a European journal where they were doing inter- intermittent fasting in dogs that <laughs> looked to be quite beneficial. So I don't know. I, I haven't had time to just, like plow through the research on that, but I think it makes sense. You know, it, when you look at the wolves, you know they're kind of on a you know feast and fast cycle. You know, they the pack of wolves take down a deer or an elk, and then they feast for several days, and then they're chewing on the scraps for a couple of days, and then they're hungry for several days. It, it, was, it was a european journal but a researcher from South Africa sent it to me you know which is one of the cool things about Twitter you know you start to make some friends on there and these people are hardcore researchers and they find papers that you know in veterinary medicine that I just would not find it's not in my typical journals um but yeah it showed benefits of intermittent fasting in dogs and it was a small study and it wasn't real long duration but I'd really like to see more research on that because I I just think this notion of having to be fed two to three times a day, every day of of their life, I just... I question that. I really question.
0: Interesting. I would just say anecdotally, owning pets. I I don't think my dogs are really interested in food more than once a day. They want to do other things. They want to run on the hill or they want to sleep. They, they they're not really interested in their food that often. So that makes a lot of sense. We're sitting here talking about animals. We've talked about low carbohydrate. We've talked about intermittent fasting. All of these things that we're talking about with pets. So we're again different species. Dogs over here. Cats over here. Humans we're over here. In your opinion, in your experience the, the digestive systems the way the animal works all of those things versus humans are we vastly vastly different species or are there a ton of similarities between the way our pets should be eating and the way we should be eating
1: well I think that I think it's similar Casey I know that makes me crazy uh, but yeah I think we should all be on an animal-based diet um I really do I'm and you know, in the veterinary nutrition world, that's the other thing that there's just such little appreciation for is the anti-nutrients that are in plants. And then another thing there's so little appreciation for is the amount of linoleic acid that we're, that's, in, that's so high in pet foods nowadays. Um, uh, I just think we've gone so far away from what's an evolutionarily appropriate diet. Um, and I think the remarkably, remarkable similarities between dogs, cats, and humans. I just, I find it striking.
0: Wow. And and I know we're both huge fans of Tucker Goodrich and his work with vegetable oils, but let's use yes. this as a transition to talk about you and your own health. As you're learning all this stuff about your cats, you're surely making these conclusions about humans. When when did it come into your consciousness that, boy, maybe like <laughs> what I'm seeing with my pets and my patients is also happening to humans and human beings?
1: Well, yeah. I remember it quite well because this was back like in the very late 90s when the Atkins diet was really the craze. And a lot of my clients, I see them once a year. And then, uh, so I see them, I haven't seen them for 12 months and they've lost like a ton of weight. I'm like, holy cats, you know, what are are you doing? (laughs) What happened to you? And they're like, you know, I lost 30 pounds, 40 pounds, 50 pounds on the Atkins diet. I'm like, oh my God, well, you sure look good, but you're clogging your arteries and you're killing your kidneys, you know. Um, but anyways, I saw so many people losing weight and really feeling good. And then at the time I was trying a really low fat diet. I was trying high fiber diets. I don't know why, cause it never worked for my patients, but I thought somehow it'd work for me and it didn't trying to increase the gym time more and more. And, uh, and then, and then, in 2001, we had a baby and then, uh, bought a business. And so I, I, it just went on the atkins diet and because i saw a randomized controlled trial that was so much better i mean everything ldl hdl blood pressure blood sugar everything was better except for the ldlc but um i think i'm I'm gonna try it and it it was like my cat like the weight melted off me i just lost this weight without hunger and that's what what, what really drove me crazy is because i was i thought of myself as a weight loss expert you know used to be a wrestler and did a lot of tough cuts and the key to losing weight is pretty simple. You know, you got to be hungry all the time. If you're not hungry all the time then you got to beat yourself up for eating too big of a meal and jump on the scale all the time. Like I, I just knew that you had to be hungry all the time to lose weight. So when I lost all that weight without hunger, it just drove me crazy trying to figure out the answer. I, I didn't really could get very far on that answer until Gary Taub's book, you know, which by the way, I just throw a plug out there. Um, Daniel Shuloff wrote a book called Dogs, Dog Foods, and Dogma. I think he's the closest thing we have to a Gary Tobbs in the veterinary world. Um, It's it's worth reading if you're interested in this type of stuff. But uh, yeah, how you could lose weight without hunger was fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. And Gary Tobbs is one of the best people to explain that phenomenon. And I love the example that he uses in one of his books. I can't remember which one, but he says, you know, if I invited you to an amazing dinner and I put on the, the biggest spread of the best foods, come hungry, what then would be your behaviors to go to that dinner? And most people would think, okay, well, I'm probably going to skip some meals. I'm definitely not going to eat before I go. And maybe I'll do some extra exercise or workout because I know that will make me more hungry. Yet most people... Don't make that connection. That that's exactly what a normal diet does. It makes you very hungry.
1: Exactly. You know. and and I think that's the other problem. Like I I'm frustrated with weight loss and dogs trying to use these conventional weight loss diets, and that they're not really controlling the satiety. So people veterinarians they get frustrated. Like, well, I put this dog on this diet and it's not losing weight, and blame the people. I mean, people don't like to see their dog starving and begging all the time and breaking into the trash can and breaking into the cupboards. You know, like just like my cat, when I couldn't sleep, you know, you just do whatever you can do to pacify him. So you can try to have a normal life. And I just wish there was more, better appreciation in my field for like the the satiety properties of the higher protein diets, you know, I don't
0: know. Wow. So, so it sounds like you were a very early adopter on a low carbohydrate diet on yourself that was then validated with other authors. Is that correct?
1: Yes. yes I, I mean, I lost the weight. And then, you know, I went to my doctor who I never saw and I uh, was just like, you know, I'm down 30 pounds and he's like, good for you. You know, how'd you do it? And I'm like, I did the, I'm on the Atkins. He goes, Oh, well we better do some blood work and see how much damage you've caused. You know? And he was shocked. And I was shocked that every single thing was better except for maybe my LDLC. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, when, when you look better, you feel better, you perform better. And all the biomarkers, except for one, are going in the right direction. It just, for me, it just made sense to just keep doing with what I'm doing. And then later on, incorporated in the fasting and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that's great. This is why I'm so grateful for people like Dave Feldman who are doing a lot of the research into LDL cholesterol because you, it, it, that's exactly what happened to Dave Feldman. You lose, you go low carb, you lose a bunch of weight, you feel amazing, your brain feels better, your blood pressure drops, you don't need medication, you go to your doctor and your doctor says, well, you're gonna die. All that other stuff is great, but now you're gonna die of a heart attack. I'm, I'm so glad we're getting more information. Certainly nothing conclusive at this point, but I, even, even in your work with animals and doing blood work with animals, I've heard you talk about this with with dr sean baker you've seen cholesterol numbers that would be very very high that would lead you i guess in the direction of maybe maybe high cholesterol is not necessarily bad for our pets and maybe it's not all that bad for us either without other things being wrong is that safe to say
1: well the thing with high cholesterol dogs is when you see that in a dog it's usually it can be associated with a lot of things but hypothyroidism is the big one but I guess the point I think I was trying to make on Sean Baker's podcast was that uh, even with wickedly high uh, cholesterol numbers, regardless of the cause, we just don't tend to see the atherosclerotic heart disease. We don't get those atheromas. And I'm not exactly sure why. I'm just not sure why.
0: Yeah, interesting. So talking again about your health journey and the things you learned along the way, as if I understand this correctly, you also have dealt with a very difficult diagnosis in your own personal life. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so it's cruising along, I thought I was kind of figuring things out with my own health, with my patient's health, and, um, and then I got diagnosed about 10 years ago with a brain tumor, and uh, that was kind of a, a a big kick and ended up having a 15-hour craniotomy. The brain tumors invaded my brain stem, so they couldn't get it all out, and six and a half weeks of radiation therapy and I had some bad side effects. The biggest one has been double vision, got hearing loss too, but double vision is just, it was incapacitating. I was unable to drive for a couple months. And um, yeah, I wasn't unable to do surgery anymore. So it was really tough setback, but things uh, slowly improved. I kind of went really hardcore on my uh, keto diet and uh, one meal a day, calorie restricted. I started making more longer, prolonged fasts and I don't know if it's because of those things or despite those things, but I did slowly improve. I was able to get back to practice and uh, it took me a while to kind of get my confidence back, but I was able to go back to practice full time. And then, uh, uh, here, that's over the last year and a half, my brain tumor started growing again. Um, It could never get it all out. And uh, so now I've retired. I'm in a new um, study, uh, it's a phase two study on. um, and it's, it's IV radiation, so it's called. Uh, ludothera is the is the brand name, but you give IV radiation and it accumulates at the brain tumor site. And uh, in my case, it uh, stopped it from growing. It doesn't kill it, doesn't shrink it, but I'm um, very, very thankful. Very thankful. Uh, if it can keep it stopped, I'll, I'm just... You know, not a lot of people get a second chance at something like this. And so I'm just very, very thankful, Casey. Huh.
0: That's incredible. I've never heard of that type of treatment. That's it, it very relatively new.
1: You know, so it's been approved for like neuroendocrine tumors. Um, so it has uh some good use there. Uh efficacy is pretty good from what I've seen. Uh, but the safety is, is quite good too. So right. uh, it's exciting. But yeah, there is a small phase one on using it for um uh brain tumors. It depends if you have the right brain tumor. You have to go through some special testing with to see if you're brain tumor, uh, has, um, a high concentration of somatostatin receptors mm. and thankfully mine did mine was the highest one that the study group here at Mayo clinic has ever seen. So, um, yeah, they was very thankful to get into that trial.
0: That's incredible. I'm so happy to hear that. That's great. I know you've commented on this in the past, but what can you say about the work of somebody like Dr. Thomas Seyfried, who's looked into low carbohydrate and kind of ketogenic style diets with cancer?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad. And, and I gotta tell you, I just love that podcast. That you, I've listened to one of the two podcasts and I did not realize that he was colleagues and friends with Dr. Cahill and Dr. Veach. And, you know, I, Mind-blowing. I know! I, I, I should have known they are all in the same kind of area, but I just didn't, I just blew my mind. But no, he's been a big inspiration to me, you know, and uh it's why I've uh, done what I have. But, uh, you know, there was a time when mom uh, my follow-ups for my brain tumor actually did shrink slightly when I say slightly they're talking like millimeter here or there so nothing shocking but that was when I was really down to a very low weight I got down to my high school weight with uh doing some pretty extreme fasting and ketogenic uh, diets but uh yeah I, I I just think it makes sense to me you know if I can keep my insulin low if I can keep my sugar low you know if I can try to create an environment where the the healthy cells in my bodies can live and even though I can't maybe kill this damn tumor if I could try to help it not thrive it just makes sense to me
0: yeah live with it and live with a high quality of life for however long that is that's amazing what can you tell us a little bit about your diet today where you are with that
1: hey I I'm, I'm pretty much carnivore adjacent um I do omad uh the one meal a day um my diet is uh it's not quite carnivore, but it's carnivore adjacent.
0: Very cool. So one meal a day. Do you know about how many calories you would be eating or what the kind of split between like proteins and fats would be?
1: No, I really don't. Uh, and it's hard because, you know, a lot of the meat we eat is, is uh, <laughs> the meat that we get. A lot of venison and elk and fish. So, you know, I don't know. That stuff doesn't come in packages. I never weigh or measure anything.
0: Cool. Um, Yeah. That sounds like you're doing everything, um, correctly. And, and it's just, I don't know, it's amazing. The parallels of everything that you've learned, not only, you know, with the animals that you treat, that you care so much about, but also with humans and your own body. I mean, what an amazing process to go through. And yeah, you're right. Like if I were you, I would give two shits what anybody thought out there about what I was doing or what I was suggesting to people, because you're seeing people get better. You're seeing animals get better. Like what an amazing story and what an amazing journey you've gone on. So cool.
1: Yeah, thanks, Casey.
0: Uh, this has been one of my absolute favorite conversations. Can you tell people where they can go to find you and connect with you in your work?
1: You know, uh, I, Low Carb Vet on, on Twitter, at Low Carb Vet. Uh, I'm not, I don't have like a website or anything. Or you know, I'm just here to learn. Um, but you know, Casey, I got to tell you the other thing when I've been listening to your podcast that made me so dang happy is uh, when you're talking about Doug McGuff, Body by Science and ah, that just brought so much joy to me because that was another big thing that well, was way before my brain tumor but like uh getting my physical composition improved and I, you know at the time I, I had two kids and a business and you just don't have the time to spend at the gym that you used to and wow well, you combine that with a low carb high protein diet it's just it's just like it's just some really low-hanging food out there for people you know excellent return on investment and I just wish uh, more trainers like you were on board with that because that I just it makes a ton of sense.
0: Well, thank you. It changed my whole career, my whole approach with people. It's amazing, the body by science. So is that the way that you do your strength training?
1: Correct, yeah.
0: <laughs> 15, 20 minutes a week just maxing out on a few different exercises and, and leave the gym?
1: Yeah, I, I usually do my routine, do a couple extra about 22 minutes, yeah, 22 minutes once a week. Now that I'm retired, I've been trying to go twice a week, but yeah.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it, his work is absolutely so influential. It's cool that you're doing that as well. Like, it, it's fun to feel not only nuts in your career, but also nuts when you go to the gym and you're walking out of the gym 20 minutes after you got there and you're sweaty mess, but that's it. You don't need to come back for a week or a few days. Like it, It's such a game changer.
1: Yeah, and I've seen it in my canine patients too. I kind of slowly came to this, and I realized, again, I could be wrong. But, you know, some dogs are just genetically gifted. They're just built well, you know. But I started noticing a lot of my patients that were really built well. You know, I'd like, wow, this dog is lean, muscular, strong. You know, like, wow, you must be a, a runner, you know. And they're like, oh, no, no, my knees, I can't run anymore. You know, but if I could just get her out like, you know, five minutes a day, five minutes, a couple times a day, and throw her ball so she can sprint, you know, after her ball. Well, I just think that sprinting in dogs is like resistance training for people. Yeah. Um, have to be long sessions because then I, I will run into the other extreme. I've made some embarrassing mistakes in the exam room. I'm like, oh, your dog's gaining a little bit of weight and uh, getting a little chubbier. And she's like, how can that be? You know, we've been running 30 miles a week together. I'm training for a half on, oh, I want to bite my lip. I feel so bad. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm like, well, just, you know, watch the treats. But I'm starting to think that that high-intensity uh, training is beneficial for dogs, too. You know, I, I don't know that they need a bunch of chronic cardio. I think, yeah, getting plenty of movement, like, like McGuff suggests, is, is very important. But yeah. I think if you just have some high-intensity training, I think you're going to get some muscle hypertrophy and better glucose disposal and all this stuff
0: couldn't agree more man the parallels between the animals that we love our fur babies and us as humans it's just so amazing dr travis enerson thank you so very much for all of this discussion again this is one of my absolute favorite conversations i really appreciate everything that you've done everything you've learned in your career and for taking the time to be on our show today we super appreciate you all right thanks casey thank you so much and this has been another episode of balanced body radio At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients Get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple, as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. (laughs) Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients, and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.